to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. We trust that you will enjoy today's message and that it will encourage you to grow deeper in your relationship with Christ our Savior. Pastor Henny, thank you so much. Uh, I don't take for granted the wonderful privilege but also responsibility of having this opportunity to come and speak to you this morning. I know pastors don't easily give up the Lord's Day at, at, the, at, the, at the front here. And uh, thank you very much for this opportunity. We are just uh, so blessed in our relationship with Shofar. Uh, I was at a meeting back in 2003 at University of Stellenbosch. Uh, the founder of our ministry, Dr. Carl Whelan, spoke to about three or 400 young students there. And just what an amazing response we had uh, that morning. And uh, we've had a, a wonderful relationship with Shofar since then. Th- then uh, one of the things I love is that us oldies, and there's a few of us here, are normally in a minority uh, amongst the Shofar congregations. And the amazing outreach that you people have to young people and the universities and things. I spoke at UP the other day and then UJ, and what a privilege that is. And so it's so good to be here with you today to speak on the subject of origins, and my, hopefully my presentation will come up there soon. But, you know, origins is a subject that people have many, many questions about. And I don't presume, in a, in a group of people like this, I don't presume that everybody is, has the same ideas. I'm sure everybody here might have different ideas on origins. But I think what we can all agree on is that it is an important subject and one that we need to give thought to uh, and to wrestle with a bit because origins goes to the very heart of what we believe, purpose in life, our destiny, and so on. And so I would invite you to uh, think along with me on this subject of origins. There was a little boy that had a question. And by the way, you know, we're seeing more and more younger and younger people being Uh, faced with an anti-God agenda in the school curriculum, and uh, we need to be able to equip them with answers to the questions that they have about origins. There was a little boy, uh, he said, he asked his mom, he said, mommy, where do men come from? And his mother, she went to the Bible, and she showed him how on the, after creating on six days, on, on day six, God took some of the dust of the earth, and out of it, he created the first man, Adam. And so the little boy said, well, Where do ladies come from? So his mom said, well, on day six as well, later on, he knew that Adam needed a wife, desperately, some of us, and uh, he caused the sleep to come upon Adam, took a chunk of flesh from his side, and out of it created the first lady, Eve. And later on in Genesis, it tells us she was the mother of all living. So the little boy was happy with this, and he went off, but a few mornings later, he woke up and he said, mommy, mommy, I've got a pain in my side, I think I'm going to have a wife. Now, we exist as a ministry to answer questions that believers have, Christians have, skeptics have, relating to origins and beginning with God's inspired word, but also using the science as well. And we have uh, offices in seven countries around the world. We have uh, 12 PhD scientists working for us in different parts of the world. My colleague in Cape Town, Dr. Johan Kreer, He got his PhD in zoology at University of Pretoria, and he was a lecturer at Rand Afrikaans University in those days, today UJ, and he actually started uh, the local South African branch of 
Creation Ministries International. There we go. It looks like we're up and running. And we produce this information. Just one of our scientists, Dr. Jonathan Safati, a former New Zealand chess champion, a Messianic Jew. He came to know Jesus Christ as his personal Savior and Messiah, a physical chemist, a very challenging area of science. He works for us full-time in America today. And we distribute this information in many ways. Firstly, our website. We've got about 10,000 articles on that website dealing with just about any subject you can think of to do with origins. Powerful search engine, topical index, and that's creation.com. Very, very easy to remember that URL. And you know, none of us have got all the answers. None of us. And we'll often come across challenges, things that we can't answer, maybe from a child. We're having a a conversation with a friend at work about dinosaurs or fossils. Or uh, if you believe in a loving, all-powerful God, why is there all the suffering and the death in His creation? Good questions. And as believers, we should have answers to those questions. So that's a free resource that you can use to answer some of these questions. We also have something called our InfoBytes. What we do with this, everybody that's on our mailing list, uh, every now and then if something comes up in the media, a new claim about a so-called hominin ancestor or a new dinosaur find, something like that, very soon one of our writers will write an article and we send that out to our mailing list. found this very strange-looking map of the world some time back. And um, what they've done here, they've, done the, they've made the various areas of the world proportional to the number of immigrants to those parts of the world over the last few decades. And you can see here, just North America, Northwestern Europe, and Australia account for about 80% of immigrants worldwide, and uh, that's changed dramatically over the last few years as people abandon the Middle East. And the question is, why does everybody want to go and live in these parts of the world? And I'm sure you could all help me economic opportunities, medical infrastructure, educational opportunities, freedom of religion, I could go on and on. And the question is, why are those parts of the world uniquely identified with what people are looking for? And I want to put it to you here this morning, that they were all substantially founded upon a Christian worldview. Never perfect, never complete, often with hypocrisy, but enough of a Christian consensus to impact every area of tradition, culture, values, education, science. I could go on and on. Sorry, we're going, there we go. And what was that worldview? The the Christian worldview, the the view that God's Word is the truth. For 1,800 years of Christian history, an acceptance, a belief in the biblical creation history given to us in Genesis. And based on God's word is truth, uh, Christian values of mercy, loving God, one man for one woman as the basis of marriage, the love for our neighbors, and the sanctity of life. And you know, there are many non-Christians that recognize the basis of the Western world. Jürgen Habermas, he's not a Christian. He comes from a Marxist background, well-known German sociologist and philosopher, And he said this, ideas of freedom, solidarity, autonomous conduct of life, emancipation, individual morality of conscience, human rights, democracy, is the direct legacy of the Judaic ethic of justice and the Christian ethic of love. Everything else is idle, postmodern talk. 
Now, that worldview, that Christian worldview over the last 150 years, 200 years or so, has been replaced by another one, the, that belief in secular humanism, the idea that man decides truth and not God, especially over the last few decades, an increasing acceptance of the secular humanist story of creation, which is evolution. And if man decides truth, that means that things like morality are not fixed. They are not absolute. They are relative. And, and so we find increasing instances of things like abortion, racism, pornography, sexual perversion. And we can be very troubled by that, and we should be. But I think what we often lose sight of is that it begins down here with the idea that man decides truth. And there's been no greater erosion in the Western world view than our sense of who we are and who our neighbors are. The Bible tells us very clearly we are created in the image of God. Male and female, he made us in his image. That's why we laugh and love and communicate and paint things and, and make wonderful music and invent things because we are created in the image of our all-powerful, wonderful creator God. We're not God, but he's made us something like him. And we're also fallen in the image of our ancestor Adam, and I'll speak about that some more just now. But that sense of who we are began to change in the Western world. Charles Darwin, a few years after publishing Origin of Species, in his book, The Descent of Man, he said this, at some future period, not very distant, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races. So just hold on to that word, exterminate there. And these ideas began to be promoted throughout the Western world. In North America, Europe, Australia, all over the world. In, in uh, Europe, men like Ernst Haeckel, a very influential German scientist, would go on roadshows speaking to the public, teaching these ideas that we had evolved from ape-like creatures over hundreds of thousands of years and placing black people as some kind of intermediate between these uh, so-called ancestors and what he believed were civilized, modern human beings. And these ideas began to be put into practice. Your first genocide of the 20th century were against the Herero and the Nama people, 1904 to 1908. About 80% of the Herero people were wiped out, about 40% of the Nama people. Uh, in Australia, Australian Aboriginal people were actually shot for specimens to send back body parts to universities and museums in Europe. And many of these remain there. Many of the Herero people's skulls as well were packed and sent back to Europe. And all of this was justified and, and motivated in terms of social Darwinism and evolutionary race science. But, and this all built up to the horrors of the Second World War. And the genocide against Jews and gypsies and homosexuals and mentally disabled people. And it was at that stage in the aftermath of the Second World War that evolutionary science, thank God, took a step back from the racist implications of evolution. And so I'm not saying this morning that anybody that believes in evolution is racist. But it was certainly the driving force of racism in the 20th century. But, you know, our belief about who we are has not improved much based on evolution. Dr. Bill Provine, he was an atheist, a professor of biological sciences at Cornell University. 
He said this evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear there are no gods, no purposes, no goal-directed forces of any kind, no life after death. When I die, I'm absolutely certain that I'm going to be dead. That's the end for me. No ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning to life, and no free will for humans either. How, does he, how did he get out of bed in the mornings with, uh, with a view like that? But you know, that is a logical deduction from this idea that we got here by purely naturalistic and materialistic causes, survival of the fittest, elimination of the weak over millions and millions of years. And this is the worldview that is increasingly informing our young people at school, college, and university today. Here's a few classmates uh, uh, speaking in between classes, and he says, what, you seem a bit down. Your science class went on for ages. What happened? She said, teacher said, we're nothing special. We came from pond scum. We just evolved apes. So our other friend asked, what are they teaching in your next class? Self-esteem. <laughs> now, do you see the disconnect there? You know, we should be teaching our young people to have a healthy sense of who, who they are and a respect for their neighbors. But where does that come from? If we are evolved from these animal-like creatures over hundreds of thousands and millions of years. And this is having a huge impact on society. Do you know that, and especially in the church, do you know that George Barner, the Christian Research Organization, have found that 60% of teenagers that are active in their teenage years, in their churches, fail to continue with their Christian walk uh, as they move into early adulthood. Why is that? They go off to college, to university, they are indoctrinated in evolution, and young people are smart. Many of them realize that the Bible and evolution cannot both be true. And many of them think if they haven't been equipped with answers to these kinds of questions, they believe that the Bible is irrelevant and they walk away from the, uh, the worldview that they maybe have, were raised in. So we might think, well, I can see that Darwinism and evolution may have social consequences, but doesn't the science somehow prove to us that evolution is true? And if we're Christians, we then need to somehow fit it into God's Word, the Bible. But you know, this claims to be God's inspired Word hundreds of times. We shouldn't be putting the claims, the changing claims of men as an authority over God's Word. This should be our authority through which we evaluate the constantly changing claims of men. But we're going to have a little bit of a look at the science. And a principle to, to think about, and probably if you took nothing, home, nothing else home from this meeting today, would be to think about this, is that there are two broad categories of the way in which science is done. The first is experimental or operational or observ observable science. This is science that's done out in a laboratory or in the field. It can be repeated. It can be tested. It can be experimented on, observed. It doesn't matter whether a scientist is a Christian or an atheist. They'll do the same experiments, broadly make the same observations, and get the same results. This is the science that put men on the moon, gave us cell phones and iPads and wonderful medical advances, MRI scanner, magnetic resonance imaging. Any of you here had an MRI scan? A whole bunch of you. Every church I go to, many, many people. 
that was a, a malignant tumor I had removed from my leg two years ago. Do you know that the primary inventor of that technology was a Dr. Raymond Damadian, a Bible-believing creation, biblical creation-believing medical scientist. Don't let anybody ever tell you that it's unscientific to believe in biblical creation. And that kind of technology comes from this wonderful area of experimental, repeatable science. But there's another broad category of science, and that is historical science. That is looking at facts, at evidence in the present, and trying to tell a story about the past. Try to recreate the origin of something, when it lived, how it died, how it fossilized. And can we experiment on the past? Can we observe the past? Not unless somebody's invented a time machine, and I don't think uh, we've got that advanced yet. And so when we come to this type of science, origin science, we have to interpret the evidence. And we do that based on a worldview. And all of us has got a worldview, informed maybe partly, hopefully, more and more by our Christianity, but also informed by our education, by the media. And we interpret the evidence through our worldview. And you know, there are many evolutionists that recognize this. This is one example, Ernst Meyer, very influential evolutionist of the 20th century. And he said this, evolutionary biology, in contrast with physics and chemistry, is a historical science. The evolutionist attempts to explain events and processes that have already taken place. So he's telling you what I'm basically saying is that when it comes to evolutionary science, even evolutionary cosmology, it's a different type of science. We try and reconstruct a story about the past based on our worldview. And the Christian worldview, the worldview upon which modern science was founded, was this. You know, the Bible gives us the most important events in the history of the universe. We call this the seven seas of history, beginning with a supernatural creation by God a few thousand years ago, soon including the creation of the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, the ancestors of all of us here. Shortly after creation, Adam rebelled against his creator, bringing the curse, corruption, on the whole universe, in fact. Romans chapter 8 tells us this whole universe is groaning, and waiting for its redemption. And then about 1,600 years after creation, following the genealogies given to us in Genesis, in response to violence in the earth, sexual perversion, probably uh, some kind of occult activity, demonic activity, God sent a catastrophic year-long judgment flood on the earth. And then after the flood, He gave Noah the same instructions that he had given to Adam to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. But Genesis tells us mankind stuck together. There was only one language spoken at that time. And at a place called Babel, they began some kind of man-made religion, building this tower to the heavens. And God confused their languages at Babel. And maybe different families could no longer communicate with each other. And they abandoned that project and began to spread out across the face of the earth, leading to the various people groups that we find around the world. And then 2,000 years ago, the Creator Himself, the eternal Logos, took upon Him the form of a man, came on a rescue mission to earth 
to die upon the cross for what went wrong back there and to make possible a future consummation, a future restoration of all things. Parents, grandparents, this is a heritage, probably the most valuable heritage that we can pass on to our children. More valuable even than a fancy education, as good as that is. And you know, this was the worldview of guys like Nikolaus Steno, an early geologist, the father of modern stratigraphy. And he looked at the, the sedimentary rock layers that cover most of the earth, and he interpreted those rock layers as confirmation of the biblical account of creation and of the flood, the year-long flood, as having laid down most of these sedimentary rock layers. But that worldview was replaced uh, since the so-called Enlightenment with a different worldview, that of secular humanism or philosophical naturalism, the guy that everything has to ex be explained in terms of purely natural material causes. And so somebody that is a philosophical naturalist has to then look at the evidence through a different worldview. The predominant uh, cosmology today is the Big Bang. There are hundreds and hundreds of secular scientists abandoning the Big Bang. And they're saying we need to find a new cosmology because the Big Bang does not agree with the observations that we are making. Look it up on, on the internet. But that worldview then looks at the evidence here on earth over a period of four and a half billion years and then hundreds of millions of years of death, suffering, bloodshed and disease leading to the existence of mankind. And one of the early promoters of that idea was Charles Lyell, Scottish lawyer and a geologist. And in private correspondence, he said that his goal was to free the science, and he was talking about geology, from Moses. So he no longer wanted to interpret the rock layers through the Bible. And he began to tell a new story about the rock layers, the idea that these fine rock layers, these lamina, had been laid down one at a time over vast periods of time. And that led to, he was a very close friend of, of Charles Darwin, and Charles Darwin then tried to do for biology what Lyell had done for geology. Well, let's th think, think about this. You might think, well, what is the problem if that is a record of hundreds of thousands or even millions of years. What is the problem with that? Well, there is a problem because it's not just time, it's not just rock layers. What do we find in those rock layers? Fossils, and what are fossils? They are creatures that have lived in the past, have died, and their forms have been preserved in the rock layers. And so it's also a record of death, suffering, cancer, carnivory, all the things that we find in the fossils. So I want us to do a, uh, an exercise now. I want us to put on the glasses, the philosophical glasses of a naturalist, of an evolutionist, and explain the formation of fossils. This is an ammonite fossil. I'll, I'll pass that one around. And, and uh, here's a, a replica of Homer and a lady that was announced. Uh, so it's, it's just plastic, don't worry. That was announced in September uh, 2015, and we can pass those around. But let's look at how an evolutionist interprets the formation of fossils. This is a, from an Australian textbook. Just a few days ago, I looked at a brand new 
uh, grade 12 South African textbook, and they teach the, main, the, the same thing. By the way, there's stuff in that textbook that most evolutionists have discarded long, long time ago. It's still being used to teach our grade 12s today. But here we go. We see a fish swimming in the water. It dies, sinks to the bottom. There you can see a river carrying mud silt down to the water, which covers up that fish. That process occurs again and again. Here in the background, you see high mountains, and there they've almost been completely eroded away. And so the message that's being given here is that this is a process that takes place over a vast period of time. Now, does that reflect reality? Any of you here gone scuba diving or snorkeling down by the ocean? A whole bunch of you? Ever seen thousands of dead fish lying on the bottom of the ocean waiting to be covered in silt? No. It's not how it happens. When creatures die in the water, they bloat, they float, scavengers eat them, and in a short space of time, there's nothing left of them. So what do we need for fossils to form? Firstly, we need a healthy living organism, a fish, a bird, a mammal, a dinosaur. We need that organism to be rapidly trapped in a, a mortar of mud and minerals to keep out the scavengers, keep out oxygen and, uh, and, and the bacteria, and allow enough time for fossilization to take place, for mineralization to occur. That ammonite fossil that's totally mineralized, so all of the biological uh, material in there has been replaced by minerals. It's basically now a rock. Hominoledi, not mineralized at all, just bone. There are huge, huge problems with hominoledi, and Lee Berger is getting a lot of stick, including from his own colleagues at, uh, at WITS. So let's put on our biblical glasses and ask ourselves the question, why do we find billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth, on every continent, on the highest levels, layers of Mount Everest, marine organisms fossilized? Which of those seven seas of history gives us an amazing understanding of why we find these things? Who was listening? The flood. The third sea, the catastrophic flood of Noah, which tells us that the fountains of the great deep were broken up. We often think of this as just 40 days and 40 nights of torrential global rainfall. It was that, but much more. The fountains of the deep broke up. Earthquakes, tsunamis, volcanoes, probably tectonic movement of the earth's plates. The Bible also goes on to tell us that every land-living, air-breathing animal and bird and man, except for those on the ark with Noah, perished in that catastrophic judgment flood of Noah's day. And so fossils are an amazing confirmation of the authority of God's word and of that flood account given to us in the early chapters of Genesis. This is a very unusual fossil, but it, it helps to drive home the point. It's a uh, mother ichthyosaur, an extinct marine reptile. And why do I call her a mother? There's a baby in the birth canal, and evidently there's another two still inside her ribcage. Now, fossilization is a, a process that takes place over thousands of years. Have any of you mothers had extended labor? <laughs> okay, <laughs> not thousands of years. It's like a photograph, isn't it? It's like a snapshot, and it really drives home the confirmation that that must have been a catastrophic, very, very sudden event to cause 
fossilization on massive scales all over the earth. The holy grail of fossils is so-called transitional fossils in between your major groups of animals. And uh, a few years ago, National Geographic, they did a 10-page full-color article on Archaeoraptor as a transitional fossil, something in between reptiles and, uh, and birds. And, well, it was found, discovered sometime later that like most things today, Archaeoraptor was made in China. Now, sometime later, they realized this was a fraud, and National Geographic printed a small retraction, and so evolutionists today know that that was fraudulent. But what it should show us is the incredibly subjective nature of interpreting the past. The, the evidence does not speak for itself. We interpret the evidence through a worldview framework. Well, what about your dating systems, radioisotope dating and so on? Don't they prove to us that the earth is millions or billions of years old and dinosaurs went extinct 65 million years ago and so on? Well, do you know that age cannot be measured? There is no instrument that measures age. What can be measured is the, the speed of processes going on, the decay of radioisotopes, uranium to lead, potassium to argon, and so on. And what can also be measured is the amounts, the relative amounts of these radioisotopes. There are some processes, including radioisotope processes, going on in the world that indicate that the Earth is only thousands of years old. There are others that seem to indicate millions or billions of years old. They are all based on this principle. Let's test your maths. Let's say you walk into a bathroom, open the door, walk into the bathroom. You immediately see that there's 100 liters of water in the bathtub, and the tap is running at 10 liters per minute. How long has that process been going on for? 10 minutes. Whew, your maths is correct. Uh, there were a couple of mathematicians that I spoke to at UJ the other day. Right, your maths is correct. But let's ask ourselves, what assumptions did we use in order to come up with that result? Firstly, was the bathtub half empty or half full, depending on our personality, when that process started? Was water rem removed or added during that process? Did the flow rate increase or decrease, or was it even turned off? You see, if you were not there in the past... You can only look at these processes in the present, and based upon your assumptions about the past, the member of the past cannot be observed, can't be tested, cannot be experimented on, we then come up with a set of results. And that principle applies to dating methods that seem to favor a biblical chronology, and it also applies to all of these dating methods that seem to favor a deep time chronology. Over the last 20 years or so, the accuracy of these dating methods has been tested many, many times. And how do we do that? Well, if we can take a rock of known age and see what results are obtained. This has been done many, many times. Just one example, uh, Mount St. Helens, massive eruption in 1980. 1986, a smaller eruption that formed that lava dome. And 10 years after that, 1995 or 1996, some scientists went took some samples, very careful to avoid contamination. They sent it off to a radioisotope dating laboratory. They used potassium argon dating. Now, the assumption is, 
Argon is a noble gas, is that when that lava hardened into rock, there should be absolutely no uh, argon, the, the daughter element of that process. There should be nothing there. And they got results back of between 350,000 to 2.8 million years old for rocks that were 10 years old at the time. And so the thing is, if we cannot trust these uh, methods for rocks of known age, you know, it, it casts a huge question mark on their reliability for rocks of unknown age. The Bible gives us a wonderful basis for the age of the earth. Eyewitness accounts and the chronologies beginning with Adam, 130 years old, when he and Eve had Seth. And we can build on through there, Genesis chapter 5 and 11. Dinosaurs, the rock stars of evolution, uh, we're told that they went extinct 65 million years ago. Let's just give a little bit of thought to dinosaurs. Now, there is a radioisotope that is found in living matter, biological matter, and that is carbon-14. It's an unstable isotope of carbon, and it decays fairly rapidly. It's got a, a, a half-life. It decays to half its amount roughly every 5,730 years. Now, Christian... Uh, creation scientists and evolutionary scientists know that at that rate, after a maximum of 50,000 to 100,000 years, there should be absolutely no detectable carbon-14 left, maximum 100,000 years. So let's think about that. If somebody is an evolutionist, would they think of looking for carbon-14 in dinosaur bones? Oh. Went extinct 65 million years ago should be absolutely none left. Well, a few years ago, some uh, uh, European scientists, they took a number of dinosaur bone samples. They found carbon-14 in every single one of those samples that gave them carbon-14 dates of between 20,000 and 40,000 years old. Now, that's based on the same untestable bathtub assumptions about the past. We believe that most of the dinosaur fossils we find date back about 4,500 years to the biblical flood of Noah's day. But do you see how one radioisotope dating method totally contradicts another dating method? Which one do we believe? Well, let's take God at his inspired word. So much more evidence coming to light that dinosaurs lived relatively recently. A number of years ago, Dr. Mary Schweitzer an American paleontologist, she's an evolutionist, she began to find what seemed to be soft tissue under a microscope in Tyrannosaurus uh, T-Rex bones. And blood vessels, sinews, over time she's found bone protein, uh, DNA sequences, uh, real other proteins as well in these dinosaur bones. And as an evolutionary scientist, she couldn't believe her eyes. She knows that when a creature dies, the biological material decays, it falls apart very quickly. But she is a good scientist. And she began to do her, her observations again and again and again. And she began to write up her research. And to start with, she couldn't get published. She said, I had one reviewer tell me he didn't care what the data said. He knew that what I was finding wasn't possible. I wrote back and said, well, what data would convince you? And he said, none. You see, it contradicted his worldview. And so he refused to accept the evidence. Well, 
she's been published many times since then. She's a great scientist. Other, evolu- other scientists are also now looking, and they're finding soft tissue everywhere in dinosaur bones. Now, she, because she's an evolutionist, she's now involved in research to try and find out how soft tissue, biological tissue, could have survived for 68 million years. And she's got some ideas about the iron content and hemoglobin. And, well, that may explain how it survived for 4,500 years, but 65 million years goes against everything we know from experiment and from observation of the rate of decay of biological material and DNA and so on. So, you know, why is it that many people are unwilling to accept the evidence of their own eyes? And I'm not saying this about everybody. You know, all of us to a degree are a product of, of our environment, our upbringing, our culture, education, the media. But this is a very important question, and we need to think about it for ourselves. But you know, the Apostle Peter said 2,000 years ago, he said that in the last days, scoffers would come who deny that God is going to judge the earth again in the future. And they will deny two things about the past. Firstly, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old. They would deny the supernatural creative act of God. And secondly, they would deny that the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. They would deny the biblical flood of Noah's day. Now, why do many scientists do that? Well, here's Richard Dawkins, uh, probably the greatest propagandist for evolution today. He made the statement, Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. So what is he saying there? He said he's abandoned belief in God. He refuses to believe in God. But Darwinism enables him to answer some of the big questions because we still need answers to our questions. And so I hope we begin to see the philosophical basis to Darwinism and the current reigning cosmology. Over the last hundred years or so, many well-meaning, often godly Christian leaders have tried to make both models work, to fit evolution into the Bible, Big Bang cosmology, and so on, and have developed all these different ideas. You know, they all have huge scientific problems, but they also have major doctrinal problems. And you know, many of your atheists know this. Many of them are aware of Christian doctrine. And they know what it does to the Bible when we try and fit these ideas into the Bible. There's a quote there from Jerry Coyne, an atheist biology professor. Well, let's think about some of the reasons why it undermines the doctrine of given to us in the Scriptures. Let's think about the word day in Genesis chapter 1. You know, the word day is defined very clearly for us in Genesis 1. Firstly, a period of light and darkness. A period of day and night, evening and morning were the number, day one. Evening and morning were day one. And then day with a number, evening and morning with a second day, evening and morning, third day, evening and morning, fourth day, and so on. Now, if we look outside of Genesis chapter 1, we find that those same descriptions, that same context of the word day is used hundreds of times. Day plus a number, 410 times. Uh, Evening and morning without the word day, 38 times. Evening and morning with the word day, 23 times. Night with day, 52 times. And every single time, 
it is translated and it's accepted as a normal earth rotation day. And so in that context, why do we then try and make the word day in Genesis chapter 1 say something else, just something to think about? We spoke, somebody quoted or spoke about Genesis uh, 3.16 earlier on. The gospel of salvation given by Jesus Christ himself, the Savior, to Nicodemus. The good news that we can have eternal life through faith and trust in him and that we should not perish. And that immediately raises the question, well, why is there death? Why are we perishing? Why is there suffering? If we go back to Genesis chapter 1, the Bible tells us that when God had finished creating, including Adam and Eve, our relatives, he looked at his finished creation and he said, it is very, very good. Now, if we try and fit deep time into the Bible, remember, we're not just putting time in there. We have to put the fossils in there as well, because that's where the time came from, from the rock record. And so it means that by the time Adam and Eve were on the scene, then God was looking at a finished creation, sitting on a record of millions of years of death, pain, suffering, disease, rickets, cancer, carnivory, all of these things that we find in the fossils including fossils of Neanderthals and fossils of Homo erectus, which more and more scientists are recognizing are just variations of mankind. And God looked at all that and said, it is very good. Now, who of you here think that death or suffering, even of an animal, is very good? None of us. Now, all of us, our hearts tell us there's something wrong, and the Bible agrees with us. God made a perfect heavens and the earth, a perfect creation, without death, without suffering, without cruelty. He put the federal head of his creation, Adam, into this perfect environment. And he said, Adam, enjoy, go wild, eat of the fruit of the trees and the herbs of the field. He also gave a herbivorous diet to the animals. But as a moral being created in God's image, God gave him one restriction, to not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we know the history. Eve, deceived by Satan, she took of that fruit, she ate of it, she gave it to Adam, he ate of it. They immediately died spiritually. The relationship that they had enjoyed with their creator was severed. And each of us as their ancestors, that's why we come into this world needing to be born again by the Spirit of God. But they also came, began to die physically. And as their ancestors, all of us come into this world physically dying. That's a cheery thought this Sunday morning, isn't it? But you know, maybe for some of you genetics and biology students out there, the process of programmed cell death, apoptosis, is already taking place in the developing unborn child in the womb. That only makes sense of God's character if it's a result of Adam's sin and didn't exist millions and millions of years before Adam's sin. And when Paul taught on death, he said, as by one man, Adam, uh, sin entered the world and death through sin. If we fit deep time into the Bible, we've got to put millions and millions of years of death before Adam's sin. You know, uh, I listened to uh, Pastor Henny's uh, presentation the other day, 
uh, on turnaround, turnaround, come back, come back, and um, about we cannot make, uh, 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 we cannot create for ourselves a designer God. God is who he is. But you know, we can't make for ourselves a d- designer Bible either. And in Genesis chapter 5, Jesus, to those skeptical uh, uh, Sadducees and Pharisees, he said, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? What were Moses' writings? The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And we find there described for us in the first few chapters the history of origins. So this is an important question and something that we really need to grapple with. Young people have so many questions. I spoke in a school as well this week, and one of the questions, where do the races come from, from a young black lady, who made God? In the last year, I've had five youngsters, 12 years old, asking me that question, who made God? In fact, they're not asking it as a question. They are throwing it at me at a challenge. And I I began to get suspicious, and it's been confirmed to me a couple of times. They are being fed this stuff at school. There is an anti-God agenda going on in our school systems, and we need to be equipping our youngsters for this and equipping ourselves as well. And uh, we are passionate about making this information available. Uh, Creation magazine, uh, it's got, there's four editions per year. No advertising, full color, family mag. Uh, We've been getting it for about 17 or 18 years. I still get excited every time I find, see my creation magazine in the mail. And we just constantly get amazing feedback from people of how God has used this information to overcome intellectual stumbling blocks in people's lives, open them up to the authority of God's word, and sometimes even to accepting Jesus Christ as Savior. Now, you know, we don't have to believe in a young earth biblical creation model in order to be saved. It is so clear that we are saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. But I think we begin to see that underneath it all as a foundation, these are very important questions. And so if you'd like to subscribe, we're going to pass around some clipboards again in a moment. A one-year subscription is 200 rand, and if you subscribe this morning, we'll give you a free back issue, so you can immediately start reading on your way home. Uh, We do have card facilities if you need to use a card. A three-year subscription is 520 rand, and if you subscribe today, we'll give you a DVD Uh, It's actually a double DVD. You can have this one if you want, but we've got another one, which is a double DVD, which we're giving away. Um, I forget the name of it right now. Uh, We'll give you one of those. We'll give you a free back issue. And if you pick up the phone and dial now, (laughs) for a three-year subscription, we'll also give you this DVD, How Darwin Got It Wrong, Dr. John Sanford. He is a world-recognized geneticist. He invented the gene gun. And he shows in this DVD from genetic mutations how we are going downhill. We're not evolving, we're devolving. Fascinating, fascinating DVD. So, uh, my helpers, if you could pass out the, the clipboards, come to the front and just pass out those clipboards. And let me f- finish up quickly. Just tick whether you want a one year or a three year subscription. Feel free to pass it on if you're not wanting to subscribe. Uh, 
You can also, for a few rand more, add the digital subscription. And give us all of your details there. And then pull off the little coupon and take it to Renita at the back later. And uh, she will give you your, your free gifts with the subscription. Just quickly, some of our other resources, the Creation Answers book. It answers the 60 most asked questions that people have relating to origins. It's ook in Afrikaans beskikbaar. Antwoorde oor die skepping. Evolution's Achilles Heels, nine PhD scientists showing the tremendous weaknesses in evolutionary uh, proofs uh, using, looking at various disciplines of science that's also available as a DVD. There we've got 15 PhDs taking part in that DVD. Refuting Evolution, uh, Dr. Jonathan Safety, he wrote that. I spoke to you about him earlier. Ook in Afrikaans beskikbaar, Evolutie Weerlee. Discount packs, those two books plus a DVD for 260 Rand. I think you get the DVD free there. Busting Myths, 30 PhD scientists and how they turned from believing in evolution to seeing how the Bible makes wonderful um, sense of the evidence. Little booklets, 40 Rand booklets, gay marriage, right or wrong, very sensible, biblical. It's not homophobic, but certainly a question that as believers we need to be able to grapple with. Alien intrusion, the connection between a belief in evolution and UFOs, alien abductions, billions of rands spent every year on trying to find life out there. Have any of you seen a fascinating book? It was an Amazon top 50 seller for uh, quite some time when it came out a few years ago. Any of you seen the latest UFO caught on tape? UFO caught on tape? Any of you seen it? Would you like to see it? Okay, there it is. Books and DVDs on dinosaurs, why does a good God allow bad things, that question I spoke to you about earlier. Kiddies books, discounted kiddies packs, you can also buy them individually. Christianity for Skeptics, uh, 50% discounted DVD packs. And then the question of race. I need to finish up. That's the, that is the answer that our children are being taught about where we come from. And then, therefore, also wrapped up in that is the idea of where the different races come from. And that image is everywhere. You go to Cradle of Humankind, fascinating outing. That image is everywhere um, of this progression from ape-like creatures to this blonde-haired, blue-eyed Swede at the end there. It's not always presented like that, but it often is. Um, This is the biblical history given to us, that we're all descended from Adam and Eve from their sons and daughters, from Noah and his family, the only eight souls to survive that catastrophic flood. And then we're all descended from the different people groups that we find around the earth today. And through well-known processes of natural selection, variation, adaptation, various differences occur. By the way, natural selection creates nothing new. It only takes from original created information in the genome and selectively enables creatures to adapt and survive in different environments and to speciation. But it creates nothing new. But that's the subject of another talk. But we call people black and white and colored and so on. This is my colleague, Dr. Don Batten. We'd call him a white man. What color is he? What color is he? Peach, light brown, 
beige. I get all sorts of answers. We would call her a black lady. What color is she? She's dark brown. I've never spoken yet in an audience where somebody is this color. You see, there is only one skin color. It's called melanin. And those of us that are a little bit melanin challenged, we've only got the genetic information to produce a little bit of melanin. People that have got darker brown skin have got the genetic information still to produce lots of melanin. And melanin is a natural sunscreen. So think about that. After the dispersal of people at Babel, some going to very hot tropical climates, some going to cold, wet, cloudy climates, and how natural selection would play a role in causing these genetic bottlenecks and this loss of genetic diversity. Well, what happens when we bring that genetic diversity back together again? Some interesting things happen. There's many examples of this. Here's a British couple. Both of them had parents, one light brown skin and one dark brown skin. There's their baby girls, twin baby girls that they had. So in one generation, you bring that genetic information back together again, and in one generation, you've got both ends of the so-called skin color. It's really just a shade, a skin shade spectrum. We did an article on them in our creation magazine a few years ago. Um, Some time back, my, my colleague, Johanny, he was speaking in George, and on this subject, and when he finished, the gentleman stood up at the back and said, But I see here, Adam and Eva was colored. <laughs> and you know, he is probably quite right. Adam and Eve would have had the genetic information to have light skinned and dark skinned children. And they would have probably been mid brown skin color, just as some of you here are this morning. Let me just finish very quickly with my testimony. I grew up Catholic. I knew that I was a child of Adam. I hadn't really, I I believed in evolution. Um, And as a Catholic, I believed that God had used evolution to create. I knew I was a child of Adam. I knew my Ten Commandments and that I was a sinner. And I was undone before a holy God. And no amount of confession before another child of Adam who had his own sin to bear the Catholic priest, was ever able to relieve me from that sense of sin. And then one day as a 25-year-old, I learned that I was not just descended from Adam, that I didn't only have Adam in my family. I also had another family member, one who the rest of us also share. Who is that? Jesus Christ. Perfectly God, without any sin, And so he was able to pay the price for my sin because he had no sin of his own. Perfectly God, and yet perfectly man. Born of the seed of the woman, his mother Mary, the Gospel of Luke gives us his biological ancestry through his mother's line, going all the way back to Adam and Eve, just as all of us go back to Adam and Eve. That he could be the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the seed of Satan. It had to be one of us. A lamb or a bull or a goat could never pay the price, never become my substitute on the cross for my sin. It had to be born perfectly human, perfect God, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And I think we begin to see if evolution is true, it it undermines that, that doctrine of who we are. 
many evolutionists, Christian, Bible believers, well, evangelical Christians have abandoned the belief in a historical Adam and Eve based on their belief in evolution. Biologos, many of your biologos people have abandoned belief in a historical Adam and Eve. And that begins to undermine our sense of who we are and who Jesus Christ is. Pastor Henny, thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity to speak to you here today. Thanks, Mark. Um, I really enjoyed that. I hope you did too. I, I always enjoy the science stuff because I studied chemical engineering. So um, I, I enjoy the scientific um, discussion. Some of you might have a lot of questions about this um, and uh, not all the answers. But what I want to just really um, encourage you to do is see what uh, Mark was saying, that all of us have a worldview. And we all look at the same evidence. But our worldview is like the, the glasses that we have. You know, the, the, the glass, lend me your glasses. You know, <laughs> all of us have a set of spectacles, a set of glasses. <laughs> I make them look good, eh? <laughs> we have a set of glasses on, but we get so used to them that before we, you've heard people say, Honey, where's my glasses? You know, and they're on your nose, you know, because you get so used to them, you don't even see them anymore. And your worldview is even closer to you than a set of spectacles. Your worldview is like the lens of your eye. You don't see it, but you see everything through it. And, and I think um, one of the things that, that Mark has helped us do this morning is, maybe for some of us, he's helped us see our worldview for the first time. And sometimes it's good just to take this worldview, which you have, by the way, you've been given. It was given to you. You were conditioned through your upbringing, through your education, through what you see in culture on TV, year, reading books and so on. You were given this worldview. And, and if you're not aware of it, you're never going to inspect it. But as soon as you become aware of it, you can actually take it off and inspect it and say, hang on, I've never seen this thing before. I never even realized I had it. But now I see I have a worldview. I don't see the world as it is. I see the world as I am. I see the worldviews through a set of spectacles, and I think it's time I take them off and inspect them a bit. Inspect my worldview and just see what it, how it forces me to interpret the evidence. And I think to some of you, this might, what, what Mark has been presenting, might be a little bit disturbing. Uh, and, to, and to you, I want to say I have a lot of compassion. But I want to say, ask the hard questions. Don't be afraid to follow the evidence wherever it may lead, even if initially it disturbs you a little bit. And, and to some of you, maybe you, you came in with questions and Mark, Mark answered a lot of your questions and, and you see, but hang on, you know, science does actually support what I believe when it comes to Scripture and, and actually can give me a lot of confidence in what I believe in terms of Scripture. Um, so I just, I just want to encourage you, um, the truth really is liberating. Yes, before it liberates you, it does, it does disturb you a bit sometimes. <laughs> but it always sets you free. And, 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 and let's be willing to follow the evidence wherever it may lead. Um, even if it leads somewhere where we did not expect it to lead.